The word of our Lord from the Old Testament book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. The Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. And so the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the Tabernacle of Meeting, which was outside the camp. And so it was, whenever Moses went out to the Tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his own tent door. And so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp but his servant Joshua the son of Nun a young man did not depart from the tabernacle then Moses said to the Lord see you say to me bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me yet you have said I know you by name and you have also found grace in my sight Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, that is, Yahweh said, the Lord, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And so Moses said to Yahweh, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I do know you by name. So Moses said, Please show me your glory. And Yahweh said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me. You shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not 
be seen. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. Lord, help us to know you. Help us as your people to find grace in your sight. Lord, show us your way so that we might know you. We want to see your glory. We want to know you intimately and personally. Help us in that endeavor. Meet with us in these moments and minister to us as we reflect upon your word, we pray. Amen. The presence of God with his people is perhaps the single greatest concern of the story of Scripture. Sandra Richter, who taught at Wesley Biblical Seminary, taught Old Testament, she put it in her book, uh, The Epic of Eden, that it's about God's people living in God's place, enjoying God's presence. And the interesting thing about presence is you can't beat real, physical, personal presence. We'll get back to that in a few moments. The scriptures tell us the story of God's desire, his concern. It's almost like an obsession to him to be with his people. He made us to know him and love him. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. What's more, God loves us so much. He likes us so much, as Dr. Kinlaw puts it, that he wants to be near us. Not just to, for us to be the object of his love, but he wants to be with us. During Jesus' last night with his disciples, Maundy Thursday, the, that last night before he would die on the cross for them, for us, for the world, he told them that he was going away to prepare room for them, for us, his people, That he was preparing room for us back home in heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place. If it were not so, I would have told you. His desire for them and his concern, again, almost like an obsession in God's heart, was summed up quite simply. I go to prepare a place so that where I am you may also be. In fact, Jesus goes on that same night to promise his disciples, to promise us, that he will not leave them alone. He will not leave us alone, even after he ascends to the Father. He tells them, I will pray to the Father, and he will send you another comforter, so that he, that is the comforter, the Spirit, may abide with you forever. He goes on to call him the Spirit of truth. He says, you know him, for he dwells with you but he shall be in you. He tells them, I will not leave you as orphans. No, I will come to you. Again, almost like an obsession that God has to be with his people, for his people to be near him. This idea of nearness to God, of his presence with, among, and even in his people, This co-indwelling that Jesus talked about, about his relationship with the Father and the Spirit, and how God's desire, the triune God's desire, is for us as his people to co-indwell. We will be in you, for you will be in me, and I am in my Father, my Spirit is in you, we are in you, and so as I am in my Father, so you 
are to be in me. This co-indwelling. It seems to be the motive and message of the entire Bible. From the very beginning to the very end, this is what it all seems to be about. That phrase that is repeated all throughout, and I've listed Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Genesis, Jeremiah again, Ezekiel a couple of more times, Zechariah a couple of times of all prophets, 2 Corinthians, Hebrews, even the book of the Revelation uses this language, I will be their God and they will be my people, talking about nearness to God, the presence of God with and among his people. Let's look at, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me uh, there to Revelation chapter 21, that penultimate, one of my favorite words, Johnny, penultimate, just before the ultimate, so it's the next to last. The next to last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 21, those first six verses, think about the language that is used here. John the Revelator, the one who sees what has been opened up to him by the Spirit of God. He says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, with men, and he will be with them, again, with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Then God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have all passed away. And so he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. The question before us is how much do we thirst for God's presence? To be near him. To be with him. Is that the hunger and thirst, the drive of our lives? Is that our appetite? Is it for him to be with him? Because his appetite is clearly to be with us as his people. For us to know him and love him and to enjoy his presence. He wants us to know him and love him. To be known by him. To be the objects of his knowledge. To be loved by him. To be the objects of his love. He wants to be near us, even to live in our midst. He wants us to, as His people to experience and enjoy His presence. And this is the story from creation to new creation. From the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis, let us make man in our image. God preparing a garden and placing man and woman in that garden. God coming out into their midst walking in the cool of the day with them. And then you've got on the other end of Scripture, 
the book of the Revelation, those last two chapters, 21 and 22. So the first two chapters and then the last two chapters are all about the presence and nearness of God. Again, in Revelation 22, the very final chapter, we read in the first, um, the first five verses, He showed me a pure river of the water of life. Now think about the language of Eden from Genesis 1 and 2. Think about the rivers that are passing through the garden. Think about the tree of life that's in the garden and how after Adam and Eve sinned, God banned them from the the garden and put angels uh, around it to keep them from entering in so that they would not eat of the tree of life perhaps, presumably, in their fallenness. He showed me a river of pure water, the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. There's that tree of life again, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face. No one can see my face and live. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. I don't don't know if those are like divinely appointed tattoos or what, but uh, His name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no other night there, They shall need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It also says, those last couple of chapters tell us there's no more tabernacle in the new heaven and new earth, for the tabernacle of God is with His people. We'll look at the tabernacle in just a few moments. So from creation to new creation, The concern of God, his great concern, the thing that is enthralling his mind, is to be with his people. That Edenic state that was fallen away from in Adam and Eve, God is looking to recreate, to recreate a new Eden, to recreate a new place for him to dwell with them and in their midst. This is the story of Christmas all the way on through Pentecost, those enormous bookends of the liturgical calendar. Christmas is all about the presence of God, the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Even Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, is about Jesus being bodily present. It's not just about existence beyond death in some spiritualized state. It is about the real presence of Jesus. Presence that can be in the room with you. Presence that can cook you breakfast. Presence that can eat honeycomb and broiled fish. Probably tilapia. Tilapia is common in the Sea of Galilee. The sacraments of the church even. The water. The bread and wine. In baptism, we are marked by Him as His people as we're welcomed into the family of God, welcomed into the presence of His people. 
And in communion, we are fellowshipping with him, enjoying his presence at his meal, at his table. From Israel to the church, the story of Scripture is about God's people living in God's place, the promised land, and enjoying God's presence. From the tabernacle to the temple. The tabernacle, a, a very large pop-up tent for the worship of God. And then the temple, a more fixed structure that God called King Solomon to, to build. From the tabernacle to the temple, even to the temple of the heart, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Even the temple of the human body, Paul says again in 1 Corinthians. To the temple of God's people gathered together in His name. Because Paul also speaks of, of us being a temple of, of His presence and of His Spirit as we gather in His name as Jesus did. Even if there's only two or three of them. And even if, it's funny funny thing about that context in Matthew 18. Even if those two or three are gathered together to confront a brother who's caught in sin. God's concern is about being with His people, being near us. I will be their God and they shall be my people. In fact, the the tabernacle or the temple itself was all about the presence of God. Of all the nations of the earth, God called Israel out in order to give them a promised land, which He referred to as his land, the, the language that, that Yahweh uses in the Old Testament about the land is feudal type language where he is the Lord. This is, this is his property and they are his covenant people who are allowed to live on that property unless they break that covenant. It was because of covenant breaking that Yahweh said the land will spew you out because this is holy land. This is my place. If you're going to live under my roof, you're going to follow my rules. You're going to live within my covenant. The tabernacle or the temple is within that promised land. And it even further represents the presence of God. This is where they gathered together for worship. Sure, you can, you can worship at home. You can worship listening to the podcast. You can worship for, you know, for better or for worse, watching t- you know church on TV, it's probably what you find is not going to be very helpful to your soul or healthy for your soul. But yes, we, in it, technically speaking, we can worship God anywhere because the Spirit is able to meet us anywhere. But as the people of God gather together in a, in a holy place, a sanctuary, they meet with God in a very special and intimate way because God likes to be among His people. And so that tabernacle, the temple, represented the presence of God. Within the tabernacle and temple, you remember you pass through the courtyards and you get to the holy place where the priests met, the holy ones. And in that holy place was an even, an even, trying to be careful with how I word it, I don't want to get too weird here, but an even deeper, even more intimate presence with God. And on through the holy place, you would get to the holy of holies, where only one man, the high priest, could enter only one day a year, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, to offer a blood sacrifice for the, for the, for the, 
the sins of ignorance of the nation. And that holy of holies, I, I like how, I don't know Hebrew at all, so um, I'm not bragging about my knowledge of Hebrew here because I don't know it. But I, I do know enough about it to know that the holy of holies, which we turn into a, a, a noun with a prepositional phrase, holy of holies, in Hebrew is actually the holy holy. I mean, it's like, it's not just the holy place, this is the holy holy place. It's, it's, it's funny how they, how they do that. Um, that holy of holies was an even, an even deeper, even more inner sanctum, if you will, an inner holy place, um, within the tabernacle, which was within the promised land. You've got this co-indwelling imagery. Promised land, the whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He established it upon the waters, the psalmist says. But then within that earth, there is the promised land. And within that promised land, there is the tabernacle, which would become the temple. Within that tabernacle or temple, there is the holy place. Within that is the holy of holies. And even within that, you've got the Ark of the Covenant. And you remember what's in the, what, what is in the Ark of the Covenant. You've got the tablets of the, the law. You've got manna. You've got Aaron's rod that, 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 that sprouted or budded. And on top of that Ark of the Covenant, which is overlaid in gold, are two gold cherubim. Luther, Martin Luther, dubbed that area on the, 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 the plate on top of the Ark between the cherubim. He dubbed it the mercy seat, where the blood was to be offered, where God's mercy sprang from. Those cherubim we think of as, you know, cute little angels, but in the ancient world, those cherubim were fierce. They were, they were guardians of the holy place. Think of those images, the images that God uses in the Old Testament of His presence. Cherubim, fierce angels. Fire. Smoke. Moses stumbled upon a burning bush that was not consumed. The pillar of cloud or smoke rested outside the tent or the tabernacle of meeting that Moses entered into and that Joshua never exited. We must take his presence seriously. All these images are calling us, inviting us into God's presence because that is God's great concern but God knows what type of people we are here in Exodus 33 he says my people are a stiff necked people I, this morning when I was getting ready I kind of locked my neck a little bit and it's finally starting to loosen up a little bit I've been a little bit stiff necked all morning but that's not the type of stiff neck that, that Moses is communicating to the people of Israel that God is communicating to Moses. It's, it's, it's obstinate. Mm. Refusing. Refusing to obey. Refusing to follow. Demanding life on, on, on our own terms. Demanding covenantal relationship on our own terms. And the context of this Exodus 33 is right after the giving of the law when Moses had been on Mount Sinai and came down and with the Ten Commandments and, and presented them to the people and said, you want to live in covenantal relationship with God? God's already delivered you. 
He's already saved you. Grace has already come. You're set free. Do you want to be His people? Do you want to enter into the covenant of baptism? Do you want to enter into the covenant of circumcision? Do you want to be God's covenantal people? You've seen how He's delivered. You've seen how His grace is. Do you want to live in relationship with this holy God who has redeemed you? And the people said, oh, of course, absolutely. Why wouldn't we? God's been so good to us. He's been so faithful to us. Yeah, we'll be His people. And so Moses said, well, if you're going to be His people, here's how you live as His people. And so he gave them the Torah from Yahweh. The Torah is not just a rule book. It is instructions. The instruction manual of living in covenantal relationship with, 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 with Yahweh in the Old Testament. And it's, it's as though just a few hours had passed and suddenly Israel, while Moses is back up on Mount Sinai, Israel's crafted a golden calf. A God that they, that they would have seen over and over again in ancient Egypt while they were slaves. And they're dancing around, worshiping, singing to this golden calf. This is Yahweh. This is the one who has rescued us. This is our deliverer. And Yahweh said, Moses, you better get back down the mountain because I'm going to kill those people. (laughs) They've just promised their fidelity to me. They've even said, may God strike us dead if we ever break this covenant. And they broke it that quickly. And so that's the context for what what we're approaching in Exodus chapter 33. Yahweh says, all right, Moses, the people are ready. They're ready to go into the promised land, but I'm not going with you because I'll show up and I'll strike them dead. I know it because they're stiff-necked. They're obstinate. And so I'm going to send my angel to go with you. And Moses said, Yahweh, I'm not going anywhere unless your presence goes with us. If you're not going with us, We're staying put right here. You say I found grace in your sight? Well, here Moses is using a little bit of the little bit of the um, um, little bit of the savings he's got tucked away in his relationship with God, a little bit of that grace. He says, If if I found grace in your sight, then consider these your people. You've rescued them. You've delivered them. You've brought them out. You can't quit on them now. To be in the presence of a holy God is a serious thing. Holiness is dangerous business. The Hebrews writer said it is a, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. For our God is a consuming fire. Holiness is dangerous business. When we hear the word profane, we typically think of you know bad words. We think of things that are that are unbecoming. We think of vile and vulgar things. But profane in the Old Testament is is simply common, something that's commonplace. You've profaned my name to the nations, Yahweh tells Israel through the prophets. You've made me common. You've made my name just like any of the other gods' names. I'm no different than they are in the eyes of the world. Holy is something that is precious, something that is mysterious, something that's tucked away, that's found in certain places. 
typically in dark places, I'll, there's a there's a line that repeats in uh, C.S. Lewis's book "Till We Have Faces," which is actually a retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche. Um, and that 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 refrain that you hear throughout the book is is a question: Why are holy places always dark places? Because holiness is a scary thing. To be in the presence of the living God requires preparation. It requires seriousness. It requires a bit of sobriety. Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. The burning bush, Yahweh threw the burning burning bush, bush said to Moses. This was the significant concern of the promised land. If you're going to be God's people, living in God's place, enjoying God's presence, you had better be a holy people, for He is holy. This land is holy. This place is a sanctuary, a holy place to meet. For a while, sure. Yahweh shouted to us, His people, from, a, from afar. That's, that's what the Hebrews writer begins his, uh, his, his epistle in the New Testament talking about. Yahweh shouted to us from afar through the cutting of a covenant, through the establishment of a monarchy, David to be king, through the oracles of prophets. He kept giving us pictures and glimpses, shadows of what was to come. But all the while, his plan was to come here to us himself. To come to us and to bring us back home. To recreate a new heavens and a new earth. That's what the birth of Jesus is ultimately about. The recreation of humanity. The recreation of a holy place where God, the holy God, can be with his people a holy people, people that He's made holy by the blood of Christ and the resurrection life of Him and by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So He came to, come, he came to bring us back home. And one of, one of the most beautiful images in all of Scriptures in my mind is what John the Beloved has in mind when he says that the eternal Word, we just read it a, a, a short while ago before prayer, The eternal Word, the only begotten Son of the Father, by whom and for whom all things were made, He became human flesh and dwelt among us. The way we've translated it, the way we translated John's line is a bit too cleaned up and abstract. Oh, He dwelt among us, okay. But what He says, what He really says, what He literally says is that this eternal one became flesh and tabernacled among us. Again, temple language, tabernacling language. He came to our camp. The God of heaven came to earth and he set up a tent for himself to be with us to live among us, to become part of our family, the human family, so that we might become a part of His family, so that we would want to live with Him, to be with Him. 
He tabernacled among us. If that's where you're staying, I'm coming. (laughs) Interestingly, the Hebrew term for presence is face. When we read of Moses meeting in the presence of Yahweh, that's why (coughs) Exodus tells us Moses met with him as a friend face to face, nose to nose. So close that Yahweh could smell Moses' breath. You know, there's real presence, and then there's symbolic presence. If you miss church, we want you to listen to the podcast. We like to see that we've gotten some hits on the podcast. Folks are listening, folks are benefiting, and that's why we're recording now. But that does not equate to gathering together as God's people. That does not equate to gathering together to worship Him together, to pray together, to hear the Scriptures together, to lift up ourselves in holy surrender to the Holy God. When I was in Haiti back in January, it was, it was weird. I, you know, I've, I've never been that far away. I've, I've, I've never been that far away from home at all. I've never been gone from Lindsay that long at all even going to camps when she hasn't come she's been able to stop in for the day and even still camps you know four or five days i was gone for a long time but even day one as soon as i touched the ground i was able to to share pictures and not only that i was able to call her i was able to video call banks i talked with your dad in spain while i'm lying on my bunk with a migraine and whatnot he was wanting to talk with me and see how haiti was going it was it was weird the 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 ability that I had because of modern technology, which you know for which we're thankful. The ability I had to communicate with people, especially my family, to be able to talk with Lindsay and the kids daily. It was it was a beautiful thing. But even still, that's only symbolic presence. Real presence. is a totally different thing. It was very surreal that last night when I got home Friday night. I mean, I made it home from the from the airport and pretty quick. It was probably record time. I'm I'm just ready to get home. I knew most of the kids would be asleep. Though some of them had told me they'd be up and I just wanted to get into my house and see my wife and see my kids because real presence you just can't be. In Yahweh's presence, there is life. In His presence, there's healing. There's true joy, true peace, true comfort. Not just there, there type comfort, but true comfort. Rest. And interestingly, others will know when you've been in the presence of God, for you will be changed. If you go on to read in chapter 34, when Moses comes back off of that mountain, having met with God... The people are terrified because Moses' face is glowing with the glory of Yahweh. So much so that they say, Moses, if you're going to be with us, you're going to have to put a veil over that thing because we're scared. Because that's a constant reminder 
that we are a stiff-necked people living in close proximity to a holy God who is a consuming fire. He may not consume the burning bush, but He'll surely consume our lives. Which is a bad thing if we don't want Him to consume our lives, but is a good thing if we yield ourselves to Him and say, Lord, would You please consume who I am? Would You burn up the dross of my life? Would You purify me? Would You make me holy like You? So now we get back to the so what portion. So what are we to do? Well, you remember Moses' reply to Yahweh when Yahweh says, I'm not going to go with you because I might consume you. Moses says, if you're not going, Lord, we're not going anywhere. We are your people. You say, I found grace in your sight. Go with me. I want you with me. I want you near me. After all, that's God's ultimate desire is to be with His people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So what are we to do? Well, we're to do something that's quite simple to say but quite difficult to do and comes with all sorts of possibilities. Make room for Him in your life. Make room for Him in your life today. Make space for God. And that may require you to set apart holy times, holy places, sanctified times in your day, sanctified places such as a public school, multimedia commons, library it may be that you need to set aside time in the morning because you know how your day can get it may be that you need to set aside time in the evening because you know how your days typically are but whatever it takes make room for him in your life And as Pastor Lane used to always say, nobody ever did anything tomorrow. That'll never happen the next day. Because tomorrow will be today. And so make room for Him in your life today. There's always, there are are always opportunities that God brings us to. Um, Charles Williams, in his book, um, Descent of the Dove, a history, he was an English literature Professor was one of the inklings with C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book, Descent of the Dove, which was a, a narrative story of the, the history of the church. And he talks about how God, he, he always brings us to points in time. He always brings us to places and to moments, opportunities to meet with him, opportunities for redemption. That's what Paul has in mind when he says, today is the day of salvation. Now's the time. If you'll hear his voice, echoing the psalmist if you'll hear his voice and not pull back from him now is the opportunity to be saved now is the opportunity to make room for him now is the opportunity to say lord i need to open up more of my life to you because your chief desire is to be with me 
You've made room in your presence for me. And so I want to make room in my life for you. It being Father's Day, dads, make room for him. You'll never, you'll never regret the decision for the sake of your family, especially of making room for him in your life. It is, a, it is possible to have an incredible dad who does not know the Lord. But you take that incredible dad and introduce him to the Lord and let the Lord get a hold of his life and transform him. And that incredibility will grow exponentially. Amen. Because God made us for that. God made us to know him and to love him. To enjoy his presence. He made us for the cool of the day walks in Eden. Don't hide. Don't hide as Adam and Eve did. Don't cover yourself and protect yourself. Yield yourself to Him. Make room for Him, dads, in your families. And that's hard because we live in a culture where that is not what dads do. Dads keep a a stiff upper lip. They don't show their kids any softness because they've got to be the rock. But you can be a a rock and still point your, your kids and point your families toward the rock, the rock of salvation. Make room for him with your families. Make room for your families with him. He made us in his image, which is what we were looking at last week, so that we might know his real presence. I will be their God, and they will be my people.